You think you're having a rough day? Imagine getting shot at in your job. Well, our guest today is going to share the inside BS about not only being a war correspondent, but transitioning from being a war correspondent into helping all of us be better at sales. Sean Rhodes leveraged his former life as a war correspondent to become an international expert in how the best teams pivot and scale success. He lives in Tampa and he is a TEDx speaker and his work in studying teams in more than two dozen countries, some of the most dangerous places on earth, has been published in news outlets including Time, CNN, NBC, Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, all kinds of places. I know you've seen his work. So Sean's clients today include Deloitte, ConAgra, Coca-Cola, and dozens of other similar businesses. He's a nationally syndicated columnist with the business journals and the author of the books Pivot Point, Turn on a Dime Without Sacrificing Results, and Universal Export, a guide for overachievers in working less and enjoying more. And he's got a new book coming out he's going to tell us all about. It's called Bulletproof Selling. Systemizing, systematizing, or system, no, systemizing, <laughs> systemizing sales for the battlefield of business. Please join me in welcoming Sean to the show. Thanks, Dave. All right, Sean, uh, give us Bulletproof Selling's subtitle again. It's systemizing yeah, sales yeah, we, for the battlefield. Yeah, we made it a tongue business. twister because, yeah, we wanted to be able to really confuse people. So, systemizing <laughs> sales for the battlefield of business. All right, so talk to me about being a war correspondent. How do you get the job as a war correspondent? So there's a couple of different ways to do it. You could either go to work for the civilian media and just be crazy enough to volunteer to go into places where they expect you to get shot at or have bombs thrown at you and that kind of thing. Or the route that I took was to join the military. So at 17 years old, I knew that if I went right into college, I was going to make a lot of bad life choices. I needed to get some work ethic, needed to get in shape, um, needed to see the little bit of the world around me. And so I went to the Marine Corps recruiter, took one look at me and said, dude, you would never survive in the infantry. I really don't know what you're doing in my office. I'm like, all right, well, here's the deal. Here's what I'm good at doing. Uh, I'm going to join the military, so it might as well be the Marines because you all have the coolest looking uniforms. Uh, what do you got for me? So he looked at my ASVAB scores, you know, the types of tests that we all get to take in high school here in the United States to figure out where you would fit in the military. And he said, dude, you are off the charts in verbal comprehension and you have failed everything else. <laughs> so verbal comprehension, we only got one job, and that is to be a writer, a photographer, a broadcaster, uh, all the things that are involved with public relations and crisis communication. That's you. So I got to go to all these military schools for how to do that. So at 19, 20 years old, I was the spokesperson for thousands of Marines, more than two dozen countries I got to see. And of course, as you mentioned uh, in the bio you read for me, got to actually study team performance in places where results weren't just, you know, do I make the sale or not? It was, do we get to go home at the end of the day? Yeah. And so being able to transfer that into what great sales teams are doing is my work these days. So first of all, thank you for your service and talk about how being a member of the military and also kind of covering the military, how does that, how does that influence what you, what you write or what you take pictures of? How does that, how does that influence your, your work in, in being a journalist? So because I was employed by the military, uh, I was only allowed to really tell the side of the story that they wanted the public to hear. 
So I was not what you would consider an objective journalist, like mm. a freelancer. Even journalists today that work for CNN or Fox or, or any of the major outlets, they still have to toe the line of what the network wants them to say. And so when I was in the military, my job was to look at a situation and say, all right, how do we get this uh, formatted in such a way that we are telling the truth, but yet we're also letting people know about the great work that we're doing. So I was never allowed to lie because mm. I would have been disbarred and thrown out. But I did have to say, all right, if we're going into a country, um, we're trying to liberate people and give them at least a taste of the beautiful life that we have in America. How do I format that, phrase that, say it in such a way that it communicates to the American people and people around the world that were reading our work what the meaning of the sacrifice that these men and women were making on the battlefield every day truly was? Yeah. Now, interesting that uh that you that you had experience writing from that perspective has that informed some of the work you're doing today when you write sales copy and that sort of thing hundred percent hundred percent i was trained by all of these military schools in how to persuade people so persuade them to not necessarily take up arms, because you can only really do that if you join the military, at least legally in this country, uh, but persuade them to look at different ideas. And in order to do that, I learned that I can't just drop a bomb like, hey, you know, you're wrong, and here's why, and here's why you should be doing it differently, because nobody wants to be told they're wrong, especially if it's a client or a prospect. So instead, what we learned how to do was align where someone is at with the new way of seeing things, to invite them, if you will, to say, you know, you're not wrong, and what you're doing might be working out great for you. Here's another perspective to consider. And here's how that mm -hmm. might tie into what you're already doing. So if you want even greater results, you want even a greater quality of life, a greater whatever it is you're after, let's take a look at making that journey together. And then, you know, being willing to hold people's hands on the way to get there. Yeah, no, it's really, that's really kind of cool. How long, how long were you in the service in this role? I did four years with the U.S. Marines, which uh, took me to two tours in Iraq, and then I got to visit more than two dozen countries. And Not just working with the Marines, but because there were so few of me on the battlefield, people with my type of job, I was basically given free reign across entire battle spaces. They'd say, you have a pass, if you will, to hop on any convoy, get on any helicopter. Uh, we need you to go to where the action is. So while these infantry platoons would get sent forward, they'd engage in combat missions and then get pulled back. I would be pulled back just long enough to get an internet connection, send my copy up, and then I'd be pushed out to wherever the next firefight was slated to happen. What's uh, what? What are some of the tell us? Tell us a couple of stories about some of the riskiest, uh, you know, things missions you went on with these folks. I'm happy to. Uh, so the crux of the first book that I wrote, Pivot Point, Turn on a Dime Without Sacrificing Results, it's actually a story of a mission that I was able to conduct with General James Mattis. This is our former Secretary of Defense mm -hmm. uh, who resigned from the Trump administration a couple of years ago. And so in 2004, when he was in charge of all the Marine forces, we were having a heck of a time trying to even run patrols through the city of Fallujah. Mm. Uh, every time we would send vehicles in, we'd get shot at and get repelled, basically. Well, that was no good for the mission that we were trying to accomplish. And so what uh, General Mattis did was he gave them an ultimatum. He said, I'm going to shut down your power and water to a city of about 300,000 people until you all stop shooting at my Marines. Hmm. And when he did that, well, that forced everybody to finally, all these, uh, these leaders of the Islamic movement there to come forward and say, all right, we're, we're willing to meet with you. But here are, here are our conditions is what they told the Marine Corps. We only want to meet with General Mattis in a small security detail no more than 10 vehicles, and you have to roll them into the middle of the city with no support. 
Well, we'd been in enough operations to understand what they were asking him to do was to be kidnapped. Mm. So their plan was everybody thought well, they're going to get the, the highest ranking general in the battle space into the city of Fallujah, an occupied city, and they were just going to hold him hostage to get what they wanted. Well, General Mattis, being General Mattis, volunteered for this mission, and they called it the Dead Man's Patrol because they didn't expect any of us to make it back alive. But they needed somebody to capture it on the off chance that we survived the thing. So they said, Sean, get your gear together, get in the truck. And so it was myself, General Mattis, one interpreter in a room full of people that wanted nothing more than to kill us in the most vile ways possible. Wow. Well, thankfully, we made it out of the city. Not a shot was fired, but the planning... The preparation, the execution, and the continuous improvement, the debriefs, the after actions that went into that mission is the story that I tell throughout the book Pivot Point and how do we apply that into our own businesses. So it was really a blessing to be able to see it, to be part of history like that, but then also to be able to share it with business people so that they could get great results in their job as well. Sure. So what uh, what goes through your mind as you're as you're getting ready to to you know get on the get in the truck with with Mattis to go in there? Are you thinking, well, they're not going to let this guy be kidnapped, or are you thinking to yourself, well, this is it? <laughs> what is it? What, what is, uh, it? There's a lot of this is it. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> uh, a lot of a lot of missions were like that, though. You know, we we never knew if we were going to make it back alive. We had great training. We had great support. We had great systems. Uh, but, and this is something that we apply into the world of sales today. I mean, the conversion rate in urban combat is 50%. So, so if you send 100 people into a building, 50 are expected to walk back out alive. Wow. So it's a very dangerous environment, and yeah. that's just the table stakes that we knew going into it that we were going to have to play. Sure, sure. Tell me about, did you have any conversations with Mattis on your way in there? Did he, did he say anything to you? Uh, it was just, uh, you know, do your job, Marine. <laughs> and that's the conversation he had with everybody. In that scenario, in that scenario, you know, in that scenario, when he says, do your job, Marine, does he mean capture everything or does he mean, look, you know, drop your drop your pen, your camera, your your recorder and and, you know, use your use your weapon if you have to. What does he mean by do your job? Both. There? Definitely both. Okay. Um, as you probably have heard, all Marines are riflemen first. And so that was the training that I had before they ever taught me how to write or take photos or, or do any of that. Uh, but in the middle of this uh, meeting that he had with all of these Islamic leaders, uh, sheikhs is their, their official title because you know, they're the community leaders and religious leaders. I thought I'd gotten all the photos that I needed. I'd gotten all the quotes, and they're speaking in Arabic. I mean, Madison, the interpreter, were the only ones speaking English, and I don't speak Arabic. So I slowly exited the room, you know, opened the door real slow and got out of there real slow. Now, my battalion commander, who's a lieutenant colonel at the time, a real tough guy. I mean, think like every war movie you've ever seen, like that type of a guy. Mm -hmm. He grabs me by my flak jacket and pulls me in real close, and he says, what are you doing out here? And I said, sir, I, I got all the copy. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm ready to go. He said, Marine, you're the only one with a rifle in that room. Because officers don't carry rifles usually. They only have uh, pistols. So you're the only yeah. one with a rifle, and that's a three-star general in there, a two-star general. He said, if anybody tries to go after the general, it's your job to take them out. And suddenly, my world just got a lot more intense. <laughs> so I said, yes, sir, roger that. And I went back in the room and just uh, stood there with my rifle waiting for somebody to make a move on the general. <laughs> so it's, it's just you, the interpreter, and Mattis in the room at the, at the time. 
Wow. With 30 people that are, are trained and have sworn to give their lives for the Islamic cause. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And then what about the security force that took you in? Was there was there at, at least they were just posted place? outside? There were snipers, you know, uh, special operations, a lot of contractors at the time. Right. Because uh, they could get jobs done that we couldn't because we were bound by the Geneva Conventions. Yeah. And those folks usually weren't. Yeah. And then after so after your after your four years is over and you come back, is there was there any restriction on you about talking about some of the stuff you saw or writing some of the about some of the stuff you saw? Were you limited in what you could talk about or write about after that? For the most part, I was not. Uh, because there is a difference between the work that I was doing and the work that another unit uh, that also took photos called Combat Camera did. So there are intelligence assets in the military whose job it is to record things, but all of their stuff is usually classified immediately until it's declassified by an officer somewhere. But my job, because I was supposed to be reporting and was reporting the news, is that anything that I took a photo of with my camera could be subpoenaed immediately by the civilian press if they wanted it. And so I was trained, you know, from my very first days going through this whole process that don't take a photo of anything you don't want to see on the front page of the New York Times. Right. And so if there was something that, you know, we didn't want to see on the front page of the New York Times, I just didn't take the photo, didn't report on it. Yeah. But it was still captured by other people that, you know, were more of an intelligence role rather than a public relations role. Yeah. So uh, you included these are these are the best that our country has to offer. Tell us uh, tell us a story about some of the exceptionalism, some of the just the strength of character of what what was an ordinary person when he or she went into the into the Marine Corps. Tell tell us a story about some of the uh, some of the incredible stuff you saw, like the good stuff. Oh, yeah, there's plenty of great stuff to talk about. I'm trying to think of all of the, uh, you know, dozens of uh, countries and hundreds of stories that I was able to report on one that really stands out in my mind. Uh, well, a lot of it actually didn't happen in combat. Um, there was a lot of great stories that I got to cover stateside. And so I'd be stationed uh, on a military base somewhere in the United States, and these uh, Marines, these Army troops, these Air Force uh, folks would be engaged in their communities doing great things. Um, the you know military service members are some of the most giving folks with their time I think I'd ever met in my life. I mean, I know it's often advised for business people like you and I to be on boards out in our community, sure. uh, you know, on a board of directors of a nonprofit, something like that. Most of the folks that I knew, they were either doing something like that, they were volunteering on the weekends to pick up trash, they were uh, volunteering um, in, in schools with uh, kids that had disabilities, you know, they just uh, needed a little extra help or needed a, a role model of somebody that wasn't, uh, you know, making poor life choices. And so many of the Marines that I knew, even in my own job field, were volunteering, big brothers, big sisters, you know, picking up trash on the weekends, giving their limited amount of free time, right. because usually the weekends were work days for us too. Uh, whatever free time they had, they just had a spirit of service that really came through, not just in words, but in action. And I think that the uh, veterans that we have out there among us and, you know, the people that are listening right now, uh, they've been given a skill set that really positions them for a great amount of success in life, no matter what job they want, whether they want to be business owners or entrepreneurs or salespeople. Uh, they just have an incredible skill set that the military has provided to them if they are willing to take advantage of it and um, turn down the RPMs on the engine. Is a, is a phrase that we've come to use. Uh, mm. And I'm sure you know some veterans that are just, uh, you know, gung-ho uh, all day, every day. Well, that works until it doesn't. <laughs> and that's where a lot of us come into friction with our civilian employers, that we have this Porsche engine mentality, and yet we do have to kind of turn down the RPMs because not everybody wants to operate that fast all the time. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah. No, well, I mean, if you're if you can harness it, it can be a tremendous competitive advantage for oh, you. For sure. And that's and that's one Absolutely. of the things that I really wanted to um, to capture from you is making that transition. So, you know, you go from uh, an environment where when you're you know, when you're in the theater, uh, there's you know, your your life is at risk even while you sleep to, mm-hmm. you know, a, now now a bad day for you. is Somebody just says no. Right. You don't right. have you don't have bullets whizzing <laughs> by your head anymore. So how do you how do you throttle back that adrenaline? How do you you know, how do you make sure that you're it, nothing's ever going to compare? It's you you know, you got to ride the greatest roller coaster on Earth. Nothing's ever going to compare mm-hmm. to that. So what do you do now to, you know, to fulfill that need that was fulfilled by, you know, going into a high stakes situation? So for a lot of us, when we exit the military, we miss most of all the purpose that we had. And so in the military, there's always a mission. It's always mission first, uh, which is how, you know, we're able to convince ourselves to risk our own lives. Well, it's because of the mission. You know, your safety is not as important as getting this job done. And that provides us all with a, a common goal, a focus that's shared. So even if I don't know you, we come from vastly different socioeconomic backgrounds. You have a different skin color than I do, a different gender, uh, different religion. All that goes away Mm. because it's mission for us first. So when we get out of the military, the biggest thing I see a lot of veterans and that I even struggled with as well was I didn't have that singular focus anymore. What do I do with my time now that I've gotten off the greatest roller coaster ride in the world? uh, You know, I've already been through the toughest part of my life. Nothing's going to get tougher than that. Right. You know, I, I, I've, I know what it's like to be homeless with just the clothes on my back because I've had to live in a dirt hole like a hobbit, <laughs> you know, never sure. going to get that bad again. And so for me, how I have focused on that is I ask myself, all right, well, what is worth living for now? And mm. for myself, it's my family. It's improving my own quality of life and the quality of life of the people that I love. It's in serving uh, in you know the decade that I've been in business for myself now, in the early days, it was all about revenue generation. Right. It slowly shifted and refocused into not so much making money because I proved to myself I could do that. Now it's in how many people can I serve and help and you know help break down barriers in their world so that they can get from where they are to where they want to be. Having that new focus allows me to pour the same amount of passion and energy I had when I was in the military into helping make the world a better place, even though I'm not wearing camis anymore. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's a great way of uh, that's a great way of stating it. I, I, I get it. I understand. Talk about the the feeling of camaraderie of not only not only being in the service, but also being in combat, being under intense pressure. How do you make the shift into an entrepreneurial world where a lot of times we're alone? Right. You're you're working at 10 o'clock at night, writing some copy or putting a plan together Mm -hmm. or, you know, thinking about going through your going through your CRM database to prioritize who you're going to call next. That's that's lonely, tedious work. How do you go from, you know, being, you know, the guy next to you is putting his life in your hands. You're putting your life in his hands. You're you. The the reason the term unit is used is because you act as one. Right. And now there's nobody. You you look around you. You know, everybody, everybody in your house is asleep. Anybody that you would call is asleep. (laughs) And you got you got an hour's left uh, an hour hours worth of work left to do. Like, how, how do you make that shift? How how was that? I think it comes down to having a purpose that's greater than yourself, 
Um, something that I really appreciated about the Marine Corps in particular was that they put me through so many challenges and, and, and tests that I know that if I set my mind to accomplish something, one of two things will happen. I'll either succeed or I'll die trying. Those are the only two outcomes. And if I die trying, well, I've done the best that I can do, so I still consider that a win. Uh, and so when I'm sitting at home at night, and I've got an hour of, you know, of work left to do, and my wife and daughter are asleep, and all of my friends that I would reach out to are also asleep, well, I really have to ask myself, you know, why am I doing this? Uh, mm -hmm. Why would I not be laying in bed, like, reading for pleasure? Why would I be, you know, like you said, prioritizing the next day's tasks inside of my CRM? Mm -hmm. Well, I have to keep my eye on the ball and ask myself, hey, you know, why am I really still doing this? Because as an entrepreneur, even as a salesperson, and I consider a lot of salespeople to have a lot of similarities with entrepreneurs. We have to run our own schedules. We're responsible for bringing home what we kill, you know, all of those things. Uh, it really comes down to if I don't remember why I'm doing what I'm doing, well, I might as well be working 40 hours a week for somebody else. And so if we don't maintain that crystal clear focus, and maybe it's paying off debt, being financially free, saving up for that vacation for the family, having the car you've always wanted in the garage, or making sure that your kid can go to a great school. If that isn't put forefront in mind, I mean, it's really tough to sit there for an hour at night when I could be getting, you know, sleep and actually prepare for the next day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Do you do you ever get um, frustrated when you're, when you're working with a client and the client is complaining to you about rejection or they're complaining to you about, the number of calls they need to make, the, the persistence that's required, the resilience that's required to be successful in sales. Does that ever frustrate you? You're thinking to yourself, you know, you, you want, you know, you want tough. Rejection is easy. <laughs> you know, I've, I've seen, you know, I've literally seen guys getting shot just to, you know, just for the, for the benefit of our country. And you're whining to me about somebody hanging up a <laughs> phone on you. Like, does it ever frustrate you? Doesn't, doesn't it ever just drive you nuts? Uh, you know, if it did, I'd be in the wrong line of work. Okay. So, so what do you do? How do you stop from just reaching across and smacking them in the mouth and going, come on, toughen up? <laughs> I see it as a tremendous opportunity. Um, so the things that allowed us to be in situations where people would be getting shot around us and we still had to move forward, it was because of the processes and systems that we'd been provided with. So it wasn't that we were all naturally brilliant. I met very few Mensa-level, you know, smart people in the military. They yeah. were average men and women from every background and every state in the Union, and often from different countries as well. They barely spoke any English, but that was their path to citizenship going in the military. Sure. So an incredibly wide swath of society. And what allowed us to all perform at a 98 to 100% success rate, that's our completion rate, by the way. So for the salespeople out there, imagine you could figure out a way to get a 98% close rate. What would that do for your life and your business? Well, that's what the military has been able to achieve. And so my question, especially as I began looking at how do I apply everything that's working really well in the military into the world of sales, was how do we recreate that 98% success rate? And it was because the military does not rely upon hope as a strategy. So the, uh, the actual inside cover of our newest book, Bulletproof Selling, I'll show it to you, even if the podcast people can't see it, it says hope is not a sales strategy. Mm -hmm. And that comes through so clear in the salespeople I know that excel. They don't have to hope that they remember the objection that they learned three years ago in a book and hope it comes back up again. No, they've got a, they've got a turnaround script ready to roll. Mm -hmm. They don't have to hope they remember what the next point of outreach is on the hundreds of prospects they're pursuing. Or, you know, what happened to Bob? He was ready to buy a quarter ago. He told me to reach out this month, but I can't remember, you know, anything like, no, that's all hope. 
So what the military does is they build systems and training and process into almost everything that they do. And what that does is it means I don't have to worry about the fundamentals anymore. That's yeah. handled by my systems. So that remaining energy that I do have, that's where I can innovate new solutions. Because if we're not present and in the moment with our sales conversations, we'll never be able to serve our prospects or our clients as well as we could. But by having all of the foundations handled, suddenly I've got that 20, 30, 40% space now to be able to say, you know, I've never thought about it this way before, but given that you've told me X and you're trying to achieve Y, let's talk about ABC because I think that could be exactly what you're looking for right now to help you achieve your goals. And if I'm worried about, you know, oh gosh, did I write down the last thing he said or the CRM notes or, you know, what happened three months ago with this account? Oh, I'll never be able to create the space for that. So I think that's really what's been the the direct most most direct path to success for a lot of salespeople is having those systems behind them. Yeah, no, no, I think that's well stated. I think that's terrific. Talk about your talk about wh how you, so you the military ends for you. Your uh, your commitment is done. You fulfilled your commitment. You come back to the to the United States, and did you immediately decide you wanted to get into the professional development space? Like what what happened to get you from where you were into what you're doing now? It was a windy road, and the first couple of years of business was a very windy road. That felt like a roller coaster. Uh, so my path real quickly was that I got out of the military and realized that I loved teaching. I loved passing on wisdom and information. Um, when I got back from all of my deployments, this was in 2005, and a lot of Marines had come in that had just never been in that kind of environment before, and my uh, unit put me in charge of preparing them to go forward. So I was the one responsible for, you know, saying, here's how you operate as a war correspondent. Keep yourself alive and do your job. Mm. And I love doing that. Uh, I didn't like getting shot at, which is why I didn't stay in the military and keep doing that. Mm -hmm. But as I exited the military, I thought, you know, I want to be a teacher. And I had a lot of really impactful teachers in my life when I was going through school. So I went and got my degree in social science education and history. And then my first, uh, you know, semester of teaching in high school, I realized they want me to work 80 hours a week for about a $30,000 salary. Yeah. And I wasn't going to meet my life goals on a $30,000 salary. Sure. Um, not that the service isn't important. I just had, you know, other things I wanted to do. Sure. And so I looked at, all right, well, from what I love doing, who is making the biggest impact and the biggest income in this space? And so I was, you know, trying to put together that that Venn diagram of market need and and you know what I was trying to achieve and what my skill set was and where did it all come together? And for me, that was in the professional development space. So I looked at the Tony Robbinses of the world, the Jim Rohns, the Zig Ziglers, and I asked myself, well, if if they're teaching, and they're teaching people who care about what they're learning, a lot of high school kids just don't understand the value of what they're being taught. I know I didn't. Mm -hmm. Where do I find that type of a business model? How do I recreate that for myself? And that's really what led me into this space. And a lot of people are accidental sales trainers. Yeah. Uh, my path was very deliberate. I knew this is exactly where I needed to be and the value that I had to provide based upon the experiences and the work that I'd been able to help other companies grow and build along the way. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's interesting. Very, very interesting. Okay, talk about your. So you, you did a you did a TEDx talk. Talk about mm -hmm. that process and. Uh, tell the folks, first of all, how did you, uh, how did you and wind up deciding to do the TEDx talk? What was the topic? How did you, you know, how did you get selected? And then, you know, were there any benefits to doing it, uh, for, for your business? So I treated it a lot like I treat prospecting. 
as far as getting the talk. Mm -hmm. Um, So what inspired me to want to do it at all was that I saw Simon Sinek perform uh, his talk about Start With Why. I saw that live at a conference. This was Mm -hmm. probably in 2012, maybe 2011. And I was so impressed. I'd never seen a professional speaker do that before. Um, I I was more paying attention to the way the audience was reacting than I was to the words coming out of his mouth. Mm. Uh, But he was really good. I mean, we've all seen Simon Speaker. We've seen his TEDx talk. But the audience, the way they were responding, I was looking around and I was like, all he's doing is talking. Mm -hmm. He's not giving out money. He's just talking. And look at the impact he's having. I could do that. That doesn't seem that hard. Now, I didn't realize how much work went into that hour-long talk that he actually gave. But at that point, I was like, well, if, if TEDx was, or TED really was what got Simon to the place he's at, um, I started looking at other TED Talks and TEDx Talks. Like, I could do that. And so, like prospecting, uh, what I did was I identified all of the different TEDx events that were happening. And so there's actually six happening every day of the year in some part of the world. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of TEDx events happening. And all of the TEDx talks are housed on TED's website, same place that Simon Sinek's talk is housed. Even if uh, TED is an invite-only event, you can definitely apply to speak at a TEDx event. They're all put together in the same place. And so I looked at all of the events, and just like you would when you'd be prospecting, I asked myself, well, that individual TEDx event, they're focused on buy local, grow local. Very unique, because that's the theme, like a company's uh, mission or value statement might be very unique to them. So I asked myself, well, how can I fit what I speak on, what I'm an expert at, inside of that goal that they're after? Mm. How do I align with and amplify the goal that they've already said they wanted to get to? And by doing that, I was able to apply to probably about maybe a dozen of them all together over the course of a year. And then one finally picked me up, and it was the you know grow local, buy local theme to the event. It was up in uh, Canada, so I had to fly myself to Canada. And I positioned my topic around how do you turn a mission into a movement? which, of course, lines up very well with you know, the, uh, the idea of running your own business or running your own farm, buy local, grow local. And so I spoke on my experience in the military and how we'd seen them turn a mission, whether it was a singular mission, like we need to you know, achieve uh, XYZ by this time tomorrow, or whether mm-hmm. it was a larger mission, like we need to liberate uh, an entire nation of, of terror and uh, you know, allow them to at least experience a little bit of democracy. So between large missions and small missions, how do they do that in a way that engages people, that gets them to want to believe in and even buy from that company or that movement? And uh, being able to share that on the TEDx stage was uh, in 2014, and it didn't produce a single piece of business for me, but that really wasn't why I did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did it because I wanted to be part of that TEDx movement, if you will, uh, where I could have my talk right alongside the Tony Robbins and the Stanley McChrystals and the Simon Sinek's of the world. Yeah, no, interesting. Uh, it's it's tremendous credibility. I mean, I think it's I think it's you know it's a fantastic cr- credibility piece. I love your description of how you you didn't just wait for let's you didn't just say okay well there's three tedx talks two tedx talks a year in tampa maybe one in orlando i'm gonna i'm gonna send my canned uh marketing packet for the tedx talk to it you really made it a sales process and you said Mm -hmm. all right what do these people need you know what are they first what do they want and then what do they need and how can i tell them or show them or demonstrate to them that I fill that need in exactly the way they want. 
and then you mm-hmm. you didn't limit yourself just to I mean the the approach was so creative that it is it's it's the same approach you would take if you wanted IBM to be your customer. If you wanted IBM to be exactly. your customer, you'd say, "Okay, well I got to go after the CEO." And then you write three letters to the CEO and you say, "Well, I guess I need to move on." No. You you figured out, no. "Okay, I want, you know, let me let me write three letters a month to the CEO and let me write three letters a month to the uh, senior the, to the executive vice president of marketing. Let me write three letters a month to the division head here and let me write three letters a month to the to the chair of this line of business let me go speak at events where they may attend let me mm-hmm. you know let me pitch myself to the people who are closest to them i mean you took a holistic approach to getting what you want so many times i sit across from people and tell me if you've had this experience and i say to them here's here's how you can map out the rest of your life decide who you mm-hmm. want to be your client and then just keep working at it until they are your client. That's it. Either they're going to be your client or you're going to pass away. Whichever comes first. Right. Either way, either <laughs> way it's going to work out. You will die. Those are choices. Either, either yeah. way, it's going to work out for you. Right? No, no, matter, yeah, yeah. no matter what, it will work out. I promise. And they say to me, I just, I, I don't know. I, I don't know what you mean by that. Well, if you're, if you're solely focused, like we, we did an experiment when I was at, uh, when I was at Gallup. Um, is a, a, a good sized consulting company. We did an experiment where we took people who had free reign to call on everyone they wanted. And we told them, hey, listen, here's what we want you to do. You, you have your clients. They're always your clients. You can develop as much business from each of these clients as you want. You own each of those lines of business. Nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna you know, mess with those clients. But for this year, we want you to pick 20 prospects, only 20 prospects. And we want you to drill down in them and go as deep as you can and you know get as much business from each of those 20 prospects and your existing client base as you can. Well, you know, Sean, the salespeople went ballistic. They went absolutely nuts. And they're like, oh my God, How only, do do 20, only yeah. 20 prospects. What if my next door neighbor sells his house and the guy who moves in is the CEO of XYZ company and he's not on the list? You know, I mean, every salespeople spend so much time thinking about why something will never work or why they can't do Mm -hmm. it. Talk to me about how you help your clients when this exact thing comes up, because what you did with your TED talk, I'm sure, is your approach to just about everything in life. How do you get how do you get your clients to think like that? Yeah, so there's there's two things we have to keep in mind, and this is going to help any salesperson, any entrepreneur. Uh, the first is about communication, and the second is about systemization. So let's talk about communication first. If I'm only given 20 prospects to work with, which uh, you know is a very intelligent route to go, by the way, as long as those prospects are big enough, and closing one of them would be like your banner account of the year. Pursue mm-hmm. 20, and maybe you close two of them, and that'll be a great year, right? So that's a good mm-hmm. strategy. So the challenge a lot of folks have is they don't understand how do I make sure I keep these people in play and that I'm not just like sending them an email every other week, which mm-hmm. gets ignored because it's actually hitting the spam filter and no one ever knew. Right. And so it's to split up the types of communication, all right? So what that means is that it's not just you know blasting out an in, in email every week. No, I'm gonna email this week, I'm gonna send a LinkedIn invite request next week. Week after that, I'm gonna send a piece of direct mail, something that's relevant and valuable to them. Week after that, I'm gonna make a phone call. And just to keep that cycle going over and over and over and over until they realize I'm not going away. And inside of that, to not just you know call and say, hey, I'd like to sell you something, but instead for it to sound more like, I understand you're going through XYZ because I read or I know or I spoke to somebody who confirmed that. A lot of the folks that I work with have experienced the same problem as they transition from where you are to where you want to be. 
here are the things that we're noticing really make a difference in accelerating the you know pace that you are going to use to get to your goals and then to give them some meaty value whether they buy from you or not but to keep pumping them with value every single week or every other week or whatever your cadence looks like until they finally realize wow this person if I never do business with them, they'll be more valuable to me than 90% of the salespeople that have you know, darkened my doorstep. Why wouldn't I give the business to them? Right. So that's part one, to differ the types of communication. The second part is, well, Sean, if you're going to differ the communication, how do you make sure that you continue doing that over the course of a year? So if I'm keeping people in play over the course of a year, I don't want to use a funnel. And this is something that a lot of salespeople I'm discovering are, are unfamiliar with, the difference between a funnel and a pipeline. Mm -hmm. So if it's a funnel, it, you know, in the instance you gave me, I'm putting 20 companies at the top of that funnel. I'm going to run them through the same steps until maybe one or two convert at the bottom. Well, what happens to the other 18 companies that don't convert? They float off into the ether. They become what you and I would consider orphaned accounts. So what we discovered was we can actually create a pipeline comprised of separate funnels. So that if somebody leaves, you know, if somebody goes through my entire cold outreach campaign, for instance, they go through all the phone calls, the emails, the letters, everything, and they just ignore me, they're qualified, they're going to buy from somebody, it might as well be me, even if it's not today, what happens to that account? Well, it should go into another campaign. Mm -hmm. But being able to track that in your head, good luck. Yeah. And that's really where systemizing all of this inside of something like a CRM makes a world of difference. Uh, I get to coach a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of salespeople. And uh, the ones that aren't using a CRM, I say, well, you know, go without your Netflix for like a month or two. Spend the money on a CRM. It will make such a massive difference. You'll be able to buy a TV for every room of your house to watch Netflix on. Right. But without that CRM, you will never be able to track more than one or two prospects. And that's going to limit your business model. Sure, sure. Talk about cold calling. What is your what's your uh, feeling about uh, reaching out to to strangers and you know interrupting their day, being that the, making that the first point of contact that that people have with you? What's your approach to that? Well, I love the idea that if we're not willing to interrupt people, then we're in the wrong profession. Mm -hmm. Because every call out, whether it's a cold call or a warm call or a hot call, is probably going to be interrupting them unless we already had something on the calendar. Mm -hmm. And even that calendar appointment is going to be interrupting them from doing something else they might want to do. Right. And so the idea is, hey, I have to be willing to interrupt people. Now, how do I do that in a way that doesn't make me a sociopath, mm -hmm. right? Because I, I want to care about other people's feelings as much as I do my own. Right. Well, it means that I have to be so convinced of the value that I can provide or that my products or services can provide that it's worth interrupting them. It's worth the annoyance they might feel because of how much I can change their life, mm -hmm. their personal life, their professional life, the life of their family, their quality of life, whatever that might look like with what it is that I'm offering, yeah. even if I can't sell it to them today. So once that mindset piece is in play, the next piece is I never cold call anybody. I refuse to. I want to make sure that when they hear my name on the phone coming out of my lips, that it's not the first time they've seen or heard my name. And so what that might look like is LinkedIn messaging beforehand to build a relationship. It might look like some direct mail I've sent to them, again, adding value to their lives. It might look like an email. But when I make that call, they're going to be like, oh, yeah, I remember. Okay, what? What is it? But it's not going to be, who are you? What? I'm sorry, I don't, I don't know your name. Because if I'm not already establishing a relationship with them by providing value, I don't feel like I have a lot of room to take away time they might be spending on their daughter's dance recital or leading a team meeting or whatever else they had on their schedule that day. Right. And so by doing the research ahead of time, same way you get the TEDx talk, same way you can really serve any prospect, you can then reach in and say, you know, we've been in communication. You didn't respond to me, but I'm not worried about that because I believe so strongly in what I'm here to do. 
uh, that you can buy from me today or not, but we will keep adding value to your life until you absolutely cut us out. <laughs> and even then I'm still going to add value to you. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great approach. Talk to me about your, your model for, uh, for winning over, winning that trust, right? For establishing that relationship. Do you, do you start with a, with a smaller ask, with a smaller investment of time and resources and then grow to grow to something bigger? Or do you, you know, how does it, how does it work? Uh, Cause one of the things that, uh, that I do with my teams and with my clients is we don't, we don't, you know, if somebody tells me there's an 18 month sales cycle, I, t I turn to them and I go, so there would be an 18 month sales cycle if you invited them to an event that costs $100 to attend. They'd have to, they'd ha it would take them 18 months to make a decision. Oh, no, 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 they would, they would make that decision tomorrow. Even if they don't know you, like you, trust you, oh, no, they would spend 100 bucks tomorrow. Okay, so get them, the get them to the $100 event. <laughs> right. yeah, or you, you invited know, them over to a barbecue no, in your backyard no, or yeah, whatever, there's no, right? Yeah. There's no 18-month sales cycle. There's a, there's no, a, there's no. a five-minute sales cycle for everything. There's a 60-second sales cycle for everything. You just got to figure out what it is. Talk about your systems and how do you incorporate that idea into your systems. Yeah, so um, we could literally go through every page of the book because that's what bulletproof selling is about, mm -hmm. this exact question you've asked. So how do we build that trust? Well, first it comes in knowing enough about them to be able to offer specific value. And this is why it's so much easier to work inside of a single market segment because I know that every sales VP in the world is interested in more sales. Mm -hmm. So if I can add that value to them, then that's one way to begin to build that trust where they expect me to show up with something that's going to add to their lives rather than take away. Sure. Second thing we do is uh, instead of asking for micro commitments out of our prospect right away, we make micro commitments to our prospects. Mm -hmm. How we do that is in every outbound piece of communication that we have, we promise what the next follow-up point is going to be and in what time frame. So even if it's a voicemail, I can say, uh, hey, Dave, sorry we didn't get in touch today, uh, but I'm going to be reaching out to you via email. I found an article that I think you're going to like. Expect that to hit your inbox next week. Look forward to chatting with you then. And then I better get that email to you next week in your inbox. And in that email, it's going to say, hey, Dave, sorry we weren't able to connect on the phone. Hopefully this email is helpful for you. I'm going to be tagging you via LinkedIn because there's somebody that I want to introduce you to. Expect that to come through on Tuesday. And I better fulfill that on Tuesday. Right. But what that does over the course of a couple of times of doing that is I've made promises and kept them every step of the way. Now, you think mm -hmm. the only people in our lives that do that are the people that we trust implicitly or the people that, you know, we help bail out of prison or family members. I mean, those are the only people in my life that keep commitments at that regular pace. Right. Uh, you know, that I don't have these types of relationships with already. So even though I don't know you, even though I haven't really found out what your specific goals are yet, I've got a general enough idea that I can add value, but I'm going to make micro commitments to you to let you know I'm trustworthy. I fulfill my word. I'm going to show up when I say I'm going to show up. And you'd be surprised how far that gets you in a day and age where it's most that most people can do just to put their pants on in the morning. Right. If right. you can show up consistently at a high level every single time, it just breaks down so many barriers that you'd otherwise have to spend 18 months of trust building to make. Yeah, no, I, I love that. That's that's terrific. I, I really I really appreciate the the philosophy there. And think about it this way. You know, there's a there's a story that was uh, that was legendary among people in the consulting company that I worked in. There was a guy who worked in D.C. when I was up in New York. His name was Kevin McConville. 
and he was a really successful guy at selling a lot of consulting engagements. And he got up at one of these rah-rah events one time and he told a story about how he called on this senior level executive at a Fortune 500 company every day, 30 days in a row. And right. he, he didn't he didn't leave a voicemail every day, but he didn't realize this is in the early days of caller ID. He didn't realize the guy had caller ID. So the guy Ooh. literally looked at his phone every day at like 7.45 a.m. and saw Kevin's number that Kevin was calling him. Finally, on the 31st day, he picked up and he said, anybody who's willing to call me 31 days in a row, um, you know, I, I need to talk to you. I need to find out what you're all about. So I think yeah, to yeah. My, I think to myself now, after listening to you and after, you know, you and I having all this experience in sales, I think to myself, imagine if Kevin would have done something different each day to deliver value. The guy probably would have picked up the phone on the 15th call or maybe on the seventh call. Right. Can you imagine if Kevin would have said, hey, listen, you know, it's Tuesday. I'm going to introduce you to my buddy. He works in the same field the you same do. Field. I think you guys can do business together. Or if he uh, decided that he was going to, you know, offer some sort of value yeah. to to him along the way, the guy would have probably picked up the phone earlier. And we we often shoot ourselves in the foot, thinking, "Hey, listen, I'm gonna work. I'm gonna work really hard, and the the hard work is gonna really make all the difference." Well, it's the hard work, but the multiplier is the intelligence that goes into it. Talk a little bit about that. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's absolutely both. So, um, cause I, I track all of the responses that I get from my, the people that become clients out of my prospect pool. And the one word that shows up more than anything else is persistence. And so what that tells me is that I'm, I'm not, you know, a, a McKinsey or a Deloitte, um, you know, I'm not a, um, a Gallup, I'm not a massive consulting mm -hmm. firm. I'm just, you know, one dude trying to do the best he can. And so what allows me to compete against those folks is they haven't figured out how to crack the code mm -hmm. on persistence. And this is also, by the way, when we go into large organizations that have you know massive sales teams spread across regions and we figure out who are the most successful salespeople, it's usually the ones that have the longest tenure. And so then I drill in and I say, great, you've been here the longest. You, you're you know making more money than anybody else. What allows you to do that? Well, it's because they're doing the same things consistently and they've taken the time in their lives to learn through often sure. a lot of lost sales. How do I do this instead of that? If I'm at a, a prospect site and he says he can't afford it, what do I say that really gets the conversation moving in the right direction rather than, oh, I guess I'll just come back next year then. So they figured out all these different things to do to, in order to uh, systemize persistence. And so for me, running the business model that I do and then helping these large companies uh, you know, scale their sales systems out, it's being able to systemize that type of persistence and that I know that next week I don't have to remember what my next point of outreach is supposed to be. If I want to call the same person every day in a row for 31 days, hey, that's an option. But I could also mix my communication up, you know, make it omni-channel and uh, still get the same message across, maybe in a way that, if, you know, phone never gets picked up. Maybe he answers an email. Maybe she checks her LinkedIn profile messages uh, rather than her email, you know. So that's another way to get in to be able to compete with these players that just are kind of throwing darts at the wall and hoping right. that they see what sticks. So I'd much rather use something outside of my head to help me manage that so that I can be present and produce that trust and add great value and the intelligence that goes into it all to your original question. Well, that really comes from asking the questions uh, with the prospects and the clients you do have, you know, what are the same uh, questions that I see come up every single time? So, you know, what, what, what is Pareto's principle as it applies to this decision-making process? What five things does every client ask me on the way to becoming a client? And what can I do to build answers to that into my outbound communication while they're still prospects? And you can do this all the way up to overturning objections before they're even allowed to be mentioned. 
You know, if price is always an issue because nobody expects to spend tens of thousands of dollars on my service at the initial outset, how can I build that value to the point where when we finally are in a conversation, I've already shown them how I could make them $500,000 worth of increased sales, increased profitability. At that point, my multi $10,000 fee is a drop in the bucket because they already understand the value that's going to be delivered when they begin implementing. Sure, sure. All right, Sean, talk to us about the assessment that uh, that you have. How does it how does it work and who is the ideal person to use it? Yeah, so what we did in a way, because again, this year is all about how do we add value? How do we create bridges for salespeople so that whether you end up, uh, you know, just getting my book and that's the only thing that we ever do business on. Hey, that's beautiful and I hope it helps. Um, the book is ebook, audiobook coming out in probably March or April timeframe. So we're getting it everywhere we can, believing that this is really what the sales community needs. So the assessment that we're standing up, it's the only one in the world that allows you to choose between probably 60 to 70 indicators for sales. So, you know, you tell me where you're having troubles or where you need systems. It could be lead generation, could be uh, negotiating your pricing, could be keeping in contact with prospects. What do I do if somebody goes with a different vendor? I mean, all the things that could happen to us in the world of sales to drill down to what is the one thing that would really help you out the most right now if you had a system behind it. And then once you tell me what that is, I deliver to you that system. And every one of our systems is uh, complete no matter the size of your organization or the size of your goals. It's got everything you need, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're a regional manager. How do you get that implemented so that everybody consistently does the same thing the right way on the prospects you have so that you can remove hope from that sales strategy? Oh, that's terrific. Okay, where can people find out more about the sales assessment specifically? Yep. If you go specifically over to bulletproofselling.systems, so www.bulletproofselling.systems, you'll see the uh, front page of the website. When we get it launched, hopefully by the end of February, it'll say, take take the quiz, take the survey. Um, and that's exactly where to go. And if you're interested in uh, getting those weekly sales systems as we release them, because out of the conversations that we have with brilliant minds like yours, every single week we're developing a new sales system as well that anybody across industry can use. So if you're interested in signing up for those over at bulletproofselling.systems, you'll see all the little sign-up boxes there. Okay, fantastic. So bulletproofselling.systems, that's going to be in the show notes. Uh, talk about the book. When is the book coming out? Uh, we're expecting the, the book one. to be out for purchase in probably late February, uh, maybe even okay. early March. And uh, it's one of those things, um, you know, for every one of us that writes a book, we always have that kind of pinnacle book that we're looking to write with our lives, you know, that one that's really going to mm -hmm. set the standard. And of course, as soon as you get it published, you want to get the next, you know, standard setter out there. But for this particular one, it's our first hardback book, the first one that includes that uh, assessment as part of the offering inside the book. So you can go take that as well. And then uh, more than a dozen individual sales systems from pipeline creation all the way to referral generation. So that you can make sure that you're doing the consistently right things across your prospects. Uh, so we're expecting that book out and then via audiobook probably sometime in the spring. All right, fantastic. Well, folks, we have just had a fantastic conversation with Sean Rhodes. It's been an absolute honor having you on, Sean. All of his contact information, including information on how you can get the book, how you get the podcast, or how you get his podcast, and how you can get the assessment, as well as bring Sean in to work with your team. All of that's going to be in the show notes. Make sure you check the show notes for this episode. If you're looking for them, this is episode 240, so you can go to 
my website, DaveLorenzo.com, and then podcast forward slash 240, or just go to the podcast. You'll see all the information right there below Sean's picture. We have bulletproofselling.systems and his podcast, as well as his email and phone where you can give him a call. Sean, thanks for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. We look forward to following your career and uh, and watching what all the great things that you're doing. You're setting the world on fire, and we're glad you could spend a few minutes with us today. Thank you, Dave. Appreciate you. All right, folks, that'll do it for this episode of the Inside BS Show. We take you inside business strategy, share all the insider business secrets with you, and we cut through all the inside BS that's bogging you down. Join us right back here again tomorrow where we share more great information with you to design to help you make a great living and live a great life. We'll see you right back here again tomorrow, folks. Thanks for listening.